You're listening to the New Security Broadcast from the Wilson Center's Environmental Change and Security Program. I'm Lauren Reese, and today I'm talking with three of the contributing authors to the recently released National Climate Assessment. Dr. Roger Pulwardi is a senior scientist with the Physical Sciences Laboratory at NOAA. Dr. Andrea Cameron is a permanent military professor teaching policy analysis at the U.S. Naval War College. And Dr. Jeff DeBelko is a professor and associate dean with the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University and a senior advisor to ECSP. As contributors to the 5th National Climate Assessment's international chapter, Roger, Andrea, and Jeff brought their considerable expertise to bear on issues related to climate change and its implications for national and international security. In our conversation, they delve into the international chapter and its significance for decision makers in the U.S. and abroad. Okay, so Roger, talk to me about the National Climate Assessment. This is only the fifth one since the assessment was mandated in 1990 by the Global Change Research Act. What is it? Why does it matter? So the Global Change Research Act of 1990 mandated the U.S. government to produce a statement, which they do every year on the state of the climate within the U.S. and issues related to that. It became very apparent as things were getting more complex at the time that a more detailed assessment was always needed. So this is actually a congressionally mandated interagency effort, not simply led by one group, that provides the scientific foundation to support and inform decision-making across the United States. So beyond the statement of climate, the attention from Congress mandated a step further, which was what are the risks and how are we responding to them? In terms of the multi-agency components, these are coordinated by, by the different agencies of the U.S. Global Change Research Program, from NASA to NOAA and USGS and others, DOE and other Department of Energy. But they engage a widespread portfolio of partners and stakeholders from academia, private sector, um, non-governmental organizations, and other agencies. How is the National Climate Assessment used? So one of the things that we look at in this context is that as details are created by state partners, tribal partners, private sector, and others, the idea behind the National Climate Assessment is to provide information to guide the development of infrastructure, the management of risks, to variability, and to change. It is very much geared towards long-term climate change, but also much more recently towards things like extremes, and interannual year-to-year variability for planning, disaster risk reduction, a lot on health and heat, ecosystem restoration, resilient infrastructure development. And so when we ask those questions, we ask, well, what are the statistics? How strong does a building have to be? What should it be able to withstand? What happens in terms of long-term trends in desertification and aridity or in floods? How should we plan for an uncertain future? So the applications are very much geared towards the impacts and the use of that information with partners at the state and local levels, ranging from public sector, cities, states, other local governments, counties, the private sector, people who do investments and who also do, you know, help support infrastructure planning, and people engaged in disaster risk reduction. So the fourth national climate assessment in 2018 was the first one to include an internationally focused chapter. What prompted that inclusion? And talk to me about the significance of having an international focus. The 
issue of the international component had a link, both in terms of how global changes around the world, whether it's from climate or other drivers, such as uh, large-scale issues of food security and so on, were affecting the U.S., but then also what it meant for U.S. interests in terms of trade, security, and even partnerships in environmental protection and equity around the world became a driving factor in thinking about how issues such as ocean acidification, warming, biodiversity impacts, especially things in like the decline of fish stocks and coral reef degradation, affected productivity in the U.S. and how that impact affected our global partners. So it became very, very clear that when things happen globally, that the interaction of these sort of globally networked risks, and I'll give you a classic case of that. In 2010, there's a major drought in Ukraine and Russia that affected food security globally. It affected issues of conflict in East Africa. It affected the supply of wheat and fertilizers into the Mediterranean basin. So increasingly, the notion of globally networked risks became a much more visible component of adaptation. In other words, the notion that responding to a changing climate also involved local impacts, regional impacts, and how global drivers impacted the United States, how the interests of the U.S. from security to global risk reduction, to humanitarian goals, to development, and to trade were impacted. Andrea, you're coming at this from the perspective of somebody who's been working in the sort of security sector and DOD for a, a long time. Can you take a minute to reflect on what Roger said and how, how do you see sort of the importance and the significance of the international chapter? Thanks so much, Lauren. Yeah, there's a lot of obvious connections that I think the U.S. government has focused on in a long time and, and Roger mentioned on. So the economics, the trade, the investments, and even the foreign aid and development that we do. Those are kind of core to those organizations that perform them for the U.S. government. But through the security side, we're a little later to the game. So it was really important both in the fourth and the fifth climate assessment to have that security lens added just to round out the discussion about how U.S. international interests are affected. Jeff, I know from, from working with you at the Wilson Center and your work since you moved to Ohio, that the connections between sort of domestic interests, national security interests, and climate change have been a big part of your research and your focus over the years. How has the pro like how was the process of working on this report and and focusing on the international chapter for you? Well, it, it was it was a, a great learning experience first and foremost because it's a fantastic author group drawn from across government and out of government. But I think back to your question and and Roger's response about the international chapter coming in for the first time in eighteen and and now again in twenty three. One of the really big advantages of the National Climate Assessment, as opposed to, say, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that it is quite explicitly international and not through the lens of a, a given country, is that the National Climate Assessment really goes down. There are 10 chapters on different regions of the U.S., so it tries to really address getting finer, more specific impacts and actions in different parts of the country, right? So something that's essential for more effective climate action and informing those decision makers that Roger was talking about. And at the same time, while those of us working in the international space see it as essential that those international dimensions affect those local and regional contexts, that isn't a given. And so over time, as you say, I've been at the kind of international climate and security, environment security for a long time. I don't think that our 
colleagues who are, are predominantly focused on climate change mitigation adaptation, building resiliency in the United States, have necessarily had the international brief connected, right? And so some institutions like Department of Defense and State and USAID, and NOAA in many respects, kind of bridging those two, many of the players in the national climate assessment space haven't had that international. So while it's intuitive to those of us working in the international space, well, of course there would be an international, but I think this really does make it clear that what goes on overseas and how we engage or don't engage and invest and don't invest really has impacts for those more localized discussions. And so in that way, I see it as progress. It's an avenue for dialogue between those who have focused domestically and those who focused internationally. Critical, in fact, on both to, to have greater appreciation, investment, coordination, synergy, rather than seeing them falsely as two different worlds. I'd like to add something to Jeff raised a really, really critical point that needs to be drawn out here in the distinction between the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the National Climate Assessment. Having been on both, the IPCC reports are really geared towards negotiations on emissions, right? The guidance and the impacts are sort of where collaboration takes place globally within the UNF uh, Framework for Convention for Climate Change, how agreements are on nationally determined contributions. This is not simply a downscaled version of the IPCC. This is, as Jeff is saying, very much geared towards guidance, impacts, estimates, and entry points for decision-making at a variety of scales. To that point, as exactly as he pointed out, to those of us who worked on different international uh, components of change, of global drivers, it's not a surprise to us but in the effort to link local to global and back down, we think the international chapter plays a central role in helping to provide the insights on how risks that are networked around the world from, from food security to water, to even things like COVID affect local places in the US and then how local actions can take place even with that guidance. To that extent, they play a role and Jeff and, and Andrea and others have been central in bringing the issue of national security Several of us have been on national intelligence estimates, things like that. Over the last decade, the issue of security and its relationship to climate, not simply as an impact, but a determinant in many cases of some of the risks has become more central. And that's one of the things that is, I think, much more front and center in this particular chapter. Andrea, can you talk us talk to us about some of the key findings that came out of the assessment and how you see them reflected in your own work? Sure. We, we, within the 17th chapter, looked at the range of international interests that could be affected by climate, and we came up with four key messages out of the chapter. The first was really a broad one that included everything in one, but we really wanted to highlight interdependence and systemic climate-related risks, how one factor and another factor and another factor all link. And we thought that was a really important step forward from the fourth climate assessment that we could add to the discussion. So to, to many of us in the field, that seems almost stating the obvious. However, to put it within the national climate assessment is a, is a profound step forward. So we had that key message one about the interdependent systemic climate related risks. The second one was about how climate change exacerbates risks to national security. That was the one uh, Jeff and I particularly spent a lot of time <laughs> dedicated to those messages within it. 
In it, we took from the national intelligence estimate and broadened some of those findings that the IC put forward in 2021. And then picking up from the fourth national climate assessment, which of those you know, have advanced in the discussion about climate and its nexus with security. The third key message was about economics, trade and investments. And what's important to note about the National Climate Assessment is that we're not just talking about all of the threats and the risks, but we're also looking at the opportunities. And there's a lot of opportunities in economics, trade, and investments that can come out of this. So it's a very balanced message within the chapter. And our final key finding was about how climate change undermines sustainable development. We really wanted to highlight that in order to achieve sustainable development, we also had to do that in connection with climate change and those things needed to be tightly linked. I mean, it's very clear that what we were looking at is the role that climate plays without saying climate causes. And in that context, having experts like Andrea and Jeff made it really valuable in setting the context for, okay, how are decisions actually being taken in the context of security globally? And then what does climate extremes change variability mean for that? One of the things that she mentioned was this connectivity of, of climate, uh, sustainable development and US interests. But critically, as is being pointed out, we took on the question of transitions pretty seriously. Not simply saying, oh, here's what you need to do and here's how a transformation should take place. We don't have to do it, you take the risk. But really, how can transitions from reactive approaches be supportive proactively in one case you know, what are the impending risks and how do you respond is proactive. But a richer view that was brought in by setting the international context is what we call prospective risk reduction, which is how do you not let new risks arise by strengthening global uh, international partnerships with others on technology, on early warning information systems, on climate services, the use of information to produce positive outcomes ahead of events and in responses to compensatory approaches after events. So the idea that we treated this as a timescale in which you have extremes to extremes and how we adapt and adjust, and then what that meant proactively and prospectively and how we not try to let new risks arise was extremely important in the framing of the chapter. Since the last report came out, our assessment came out in 2018, the sort of the global landscape, the geostrategic landscape has changed significantly. Where we're at with climate change, progress has been made, but not nearly enough. We're seeing more extremes faster, right, than expected. So how does the international chapter in this assessment reflect that evolution of events over the last five years? And Jeff, maybe we can start with you. Sure. I would say one example that comes through in the security section, but also the trade and investment section, what's different is that in the United States now, we have a really significant investment in making transition and developing renewable energy technologies and deploying them at a scale that we haven't been doing, certainly not in 2018. And so part of what that progress, I would say, means, however, is that the question of where those inputs, and we so we focused on mine minerals and metals that are essential for green energy technologies, and that so many of them and so much of them come from overseas. And so in the security section, then we were able to frame the supply chain questions and put those in a geopolitical and a geoeconomic context in terms of competitors and competition for that, that factor in, in ways that 
um, if one were just looking at domestic investments in this space, one might be quite optimistic, but wouldn't have the full picture of what it's going to take and what are some external limitations. And unless you understand that international context, then you're not going to really understand what, what is and isn't going to happen or, or what one has to do to make it happen. And so in that respect, I think that is a different reality that we tried to reflect in part by what the responses are. Um, but it is a very good example of how we really can't have this false distinction between a domestic activity and what's going on internationally. I'll pick up where Jeff left off because he talked about the competition for minerals and the energy transition, which was a focus across the board. A couple things, uh, this one, the report takes a couple years to write. So even in writing it, not just the 2018 report, but in the construction of writing this, there's a lot that's changed around the world that, that we're kind of in real time adjusting to. So some of the other key things that we drew out was really looking at the connection with stability and climate. And we looked at it both ways. It's a lot of people kind of make the natural causal link that doesn't actually exist necessarily directly, that climate change can cause conflict. But we also realized that conflict in various places around the world can hinder efforts, both adaptation and mitigation. If you have instability, your government can no longer do the things they want to do to meet their own nationally determined contributions. So that was one piece that we pulled forward based on what we've seen evolve throughout the world. Another one was looking at the increased uh, humanitarian relief needs, which we see across the board, how those have increased during the evolution of this project. And the last one that I think changed the most from start to finish, even in our writing process, was geoengineering and how countries might unilaterally use geoengineering technologies. It was very low on our radar when we started, but by the time we were <laughs> finishing the report, we realized there was a lot more in the public space. There was more news stories, private actors, and it became kind of something we felt needed to be added and highlighted a little bit more by the end of the process. Roger, you're engaged in a number of sort of relevant international efforts, whether it's around droughts or flooding. And I just engage in a, in a number of multilateral sort of organizations and efforts and research, right? Does the report sort of sync up with these other efforts in ways <clears throat> that you think are useful? So this is a really rich point in the sense of, um, great, it's good we write this. And um, we can hopefully, as we as we begin to do more outreach on what's in the chapter and the report, how this might link within the US. But what we're also seeing is a lot of efforts. There's an effort we'll call Adaptation Without Borders, which is multi-agency. The UK, for the first time in doing its national climate assessment, is doing an international chapter. And what this says is, as we work around the world with the UN Security Council, I, I briefed the UN General Assembly, the UN Environment Program. I chair the World Meteorological Organization Climate Services Information System. There's a whole lot of these sorts of efforts. And one of the things that we're putting into place here is where collaboration can actually take place. That in fact, when we have impacts on value chains of what comes into the US and what goes out of it, and I'll give you a quick indicator, we saw certainly basically the shutdown of things like wheat and fertilizer, as I mentioned from Ukraine because of the conflict there, exacerbating food security, famine in Eastern Africa, at the same time, we actually had a drought in the lower Mississippi, which actually pretty much restricted the shipping of wheat and other grain out of the Mississippi. 
So in fact, we're seeing these globally connected risks, the connection between the value chain, what is being supplied and the different pieces therein, and where collaboration might take place in terms of rather than people grasping around the world for where the open markets are and who's not impacted, how we can actually bring to bear with those partners in the UN Office of Disaster Risk Reduction, I said on their global assessment team, how we align these efforts ensuring that the actions are informed by the best available science and impacts, and also taking a collaborative and peace-building approach in saying these identify areas in which we can work together to help stave off insecurity in value chains, in humanitarian uh, assistance, and certainly in re resilient infrastructure development to stave off ongoing, not strictly driven by climate change, but ongoing and future impacts on infrastructure. So the types of ideas that are in here that you're seeing here and from Andrea and Jeff are very much resonant, but it's very interesting to have, instead of saying, look, what is new, you know, not instead of it, are there surprises? The, the surprise is that we're putting it in one place. In other words, with a coherent evidence base behind it. That is a rich thing by itself. What do we know and how well do we know it? And that's what the chapter does. Okay, so we're recording this on the first day of the COP. It won't probably publish until after the COP. But what's especially interesting to us at ECSP this year is that this is the first COP to have a thematic day focused on conflict disasters peace, right? The the third day is on um, is it right. December 3rd on, on relief recovery and peace, which I think shows some alignment with the international chapter of the National Climate Assessment, recognizing the importance of understanding and responding to the linkages between conflict, security, and peace. That being said, I, I'm very curious to hear from you how you hope to see this chapter being put to work, whether domestically in the U.S. or through international partnerships. And Jeff, maybe we'll start with you. I think there are lots of audiences, lots of stakeholders, lots of decision makers of public and private that will find great utility in this report. I think processes like the UNFCCC negotiations and the Conference of Parties, that in many respects, those communities are focused on international and collaborative efforts to address climate change. At the same time, I think it's critically important for them to see the United States as it assesses its own national climate assessment, that it sees the international dimensions and what's going on in all these other countries and with our partners and those sitting across the negotiating table that we're taking it seriously, so to speak, and looking at ourselves and our actions and what that means, as well as in the international chapter, a message that engagement, collaboration, cooperation matters in these areas of security and economy and sustainability and the intersection of all these issues, right? And so in that way, it establishes credibility, it provides a roadmap, it shows specific as to where we see the assessments, but also some sense of the activities and the priorities that are also reflected, because it is not just strictly a scientific assessment. It's one that talks about impacts and action. Um, um, uh, observed and potential and what the implications would be. So in that respect, I hope that while certainly a prime target audience are local decision makers in the United States, it also plays a critical function in empowering and informing U.S. delegations and formal and informal, track one and track two overseas in these kinds of processes as well. 
Thanks, Jeff. Andrea, coming from DOD, and I think you were the only contributing author from the DOD that was part of the assessment? From the high levels, yeah. We had the also the Army Corps of Engineers that contributed oh, as well on, on the okay. domestic front, but uh, yes. And I look at the, you know, how can we see this chapter uh, be of use? I, I see it through two lenses. One, um, I, I live in a world where not a lot of people prioritize climate changes or even see the linkages with a climate security threat in the Department of Defense. I can go to other agencies like USAID where climate change is in their DNA and in every program they run, but that, that is not the world I live in. So I think we built a really compelling chapter that looks at the breadth of international interests and will be rather intuitively received by anyone who's reading it. My job was to kind of make sure it was readable from a security practitioner's lens. So I think it's really useful in that capacity broadly to anyone in the security community. I also see it, you know, I'm an educator. I teach at the Naval War College. And I think it's an incredible, like if you just want a little primer and you can't read a book or you're teaching a class, this is a perfect go-to read of, you know, we've made it so concise and condensed, but we, we've done our best to cover all of the bases of what where international interests are affected. Uh, so I, I recommend it to everyone as, as the starting place for where to, to pursue interests in this topic. I totally agree. And even just the sources, right? That's very rich with really good sources for people who want to maybe dive a little bit deeper into the specifics. Roger, finally, over to you. So from what we've heard, and, and this is, uh, I mean, several values, including at local levels in the, in the U.S., which are the awareness within that document as we do more outreach with it in, in different parts of the country, that locally derived impacts and trade are in fact affected by what happens globally. When in the years ago, when I was helping to create something called the National Integrated Drought Information System, the governor of Nebraska immediately asked me, can you tell me what is happening in the wheat producing areas of Australia, Brazil, and Canada? Because I need to know that and my constituents need to know that. So immediately that tie back to the awareness that local is indeed critical, but we live in an interconnected world becomes very, very central. If I were to say one of the things that including, you know, supporting the rich statements that were just given is the issue that it forms the basis for developing a much more ecosystem level framing for regional collaboration around adaptation planning. And by that, I mean, with other countries whose border we share, we share uh, Canada and Mexico on transboundary risks and resources, water quality and water quantity come to mind, then the international components related to food, trade and commodities as well. So we have, in fact, some guidance and basis for thinking about the risks behind those. Now, we also are not exactly, as Andrea is saying, taking a linear view of X happens and it impacts Y. I mean, if we look at things like heat waves, we go, look, the tropics are heating up. We're seeing that. But the vulnerable people in temperate latitudes where we live in Europe and elsewhere are older folks who have never experienced heat waves. So you could look at a heat map and see areas that are heating, but in fact, the people who are affected are those who are vulnerable, not simply where the risk is. So we've tried to get at some of those within the context of these. What are the counterfactuals? What are the things you might, might not be as intuitive? But more than anything else, it helps us make the case that risks are in fact systemic. It's not one event impacts us, it impacts our ability to respond in terms of water, health, our networks, our transportation networks. And it also lets us get a stronger sense that what happens in one part of the world affects us, our economics, 
our sense of well-being and our partnerships for how we maintain security in the world. A great note to end on. Thank you all for taking the time to speak with us today. And thank you very much for the years of work that went into this assessment. I hope that it is deployed widely and effectively, both both here within the United States, but also internationally. Thanks. And, and hopefully we'll get talk to you again soon. Cheers. Thanks. You've been listening to the new security broadcast from the Wilson Center. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, follow us on Twitter at NewSecurityBeat and visit NewSecurityBeat.org.